All right, grab your Bible, head to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And as you turn there, I'll go ahead and let you know that this passage of Scripture gives us fresh water of grace in a dry land of what I'll call self-help and self-improvement. Uh, that's sort of the, the ethos that we live in, right? Self-help and self-improvement. It's all about your work, your performance, you bettering yourself, you earning the spoils for which you have worked. That's a cultural movement that is violently afoot in our time. And I understand why it's become such a phenomenon socially, and it's because we're reacting to what has been laziness as a cultural phenomenon. And so there's a reaction to that. You see, it's obvious to us as we survey the social landscape that there's a counter-revolution in opposition to laziness. You guys, I imagine, are familiar with the uh, phenomenon of there being lots of people think about stimulus money going out during COVID. And a lot of people are like, okay, well, I just won't work, <laughs> right? I if they're just going to give me money for free, then I don't have to go into my job, despite the fact that people are saying, okay, I, I, you could do this, though, and I'd pay you this much to do this, and you know all these sorts of things, and people just opted not to work. There's been a grip of laziness that has been somewhat characteristic of the social landscape, but what has emerged to fight that landscape of laziness, except things like the 4 a.m. club, the Jocko Willink podcast, David Goggins yelling at us about carrying boats and logs, and an endless litany of content creators teaching men and women how to be high performers, high earners, high status, high caliber. Are you guys familiar with this, or am I the only person who consumes these sorts of things? That, that, is, that is the podcast space. That is the YouTube world, right? Here's how to be better, because as we're looking around, you can kind of tell everybody sucks a little bit, right? And so what do we do? We're like, yeah. Yeah, we do kind of suck a little bit. We need some, some ex-Marine guys to yell at us and tell us how to suck less, right? And so now they've got millions and millions of subscribers because everybody can sense there's something wrong, but our secular humanist culture can't think of any way to fix what is wrong except to say, work harder, do better, dig deep, and fix it yourself. That's the message that our culture has, right? You've been lazy, you've been underperforming. So, you know what you need to do? Not repent of your sins, be empowered by the Spirit, let the Lord Jesus work. No, 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 no. Get up earlier, work out harder, grab those bootstraps and pull. Right? That's the message. And that's, that's the counter-revolution to the laziness that has been afoot in our culture. But this text is going to put our work and our effort in its proper place, which won't make us work any less diligently than we should, but it will make us work with more peace. It won't make us work less diligently, but it will make us work more peacefully. You see, this text brings the work of Christ to the foreground and lets our work fade to the background. And if we were reading last week's text carefully, then we already noticed that divine work is beginning to take precedence over human work as we zeroed in on Jesus' language of inheriting eternal life. The rich young ruler asked, what good things must I do in order to earn eternal life? What's he doing? He's centering man's work, isn't he? He's, he's putting man's work at the center and assigning efficacy to what we do in terms of self-help and self-improvement. 
But Jesus concludes that portion of the discourse by talking about the good inheritance that we're going to be given by our Father because of His work. You see the difference? Jesus is already beginning to, to center things on the divine work and background human work and effort. You see, the work that must be done for us to inherit eternal life is the work of being born into the right family. And if you've ever been present during labor and delivery, then you know that the primary worker in that situation is not the one who's being birthed. Rather, the primary worker in that situation is the one who's doing the birthing. And in Christian theology, the work of rebirth, new birth, or the fancier term regeneration belongs to none other than the Holy Spirit of God, as Jesus explains to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So whose work is Jesus platforming and centralizing except God's own work? The Bible doesn't emphasize and elevate our work as it relates to salvation. It emphasizes and elevates Christ's work. Now, that being said, as we discussed last week, receiving an inheritance doesn't mean that we don't work. It just means that your work doesn't have to be aimed at survival or subsistence anymore. Because all that we need has already been provided. This transforms our work. When you've received a good inheritance, your work is freed up to be aimed at expansion rather than survival or subsistence. Do you see that? That's how family wealth should work, too. We talked a little bit about this in the prologue, but if your kids don't have to spend their time, energy, and money on the acquisition of housing and land, then those resources that they would have otherwise spent on those necessities can be, expend, can be spent expanding something. You see how that works. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. Our heavenly Father isn't going to make us spend our life's work subsisting, just working for survival. That is working to be saved. He's not going to make us spend our life's work on that. Rather, he's going to give us the life that we need so that our work can be freed up and spent on expansion rather than survival. That's the idea. Which is why Jesus calls us to a great commission of expanding the kingdom rather than telling us you've been commissioned to work so that you can enter the kingdom. Two very different ideas. Stated differently, we work not for our salvation, but from our salvation. We do not work for our salvation, we work from our salvation. So with that, we're primed to read this morning's text, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. The Lord says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. These are the scrubs. <laughs> no, nobody hired us. They were the weak, skinny-looking guys. Everybody's like, ah, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received 
a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give, uh, excuse me, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I am, not, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, I believe that this parable is told in response to and following up on two elements of the previous conversation from Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, with the rich young ruler, and then into the discourse about that conversation that he has with the disciples. I think that one element that he's following up on is the possible confusion between works and grace that may exist in the minds of the disciples, given the way that that conversation with the rich young ruler went down. That he's thinking, I, I, need, to, I need to give uh, some further explanation of that dynamic between works and grace. The second thing I believe he's following up on is the possibility of pride creeping into the disciples' hearts because, after all, they were the ones who did what the rich young ruler failed to do. Hence Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27, when he says, we gave up everything to follow you. What are you going to give us? And so he tells this parable to both untangle a possible confusion about what our work is and is not supposed to do, and then also to mitigate what could be a creeping kind of pride among those of us who are actually relatively obedient and kind of do what we're told. On point one... It's clear why Jesus would feel the need to clarify his teaching about entry into the kingdom of heaven or salvation or eternal life, isn't it? You see, when he was speaking to the rich young ruler, he didn't divorce salvation from works in the clear way that we non-Catholics would have liked him to. He didn't say that quite as explicitly as many of us were hoping that he would, as we talked about last week. In fact, he seemed to flirt with the idea of earning salvation by good works pretty aggressively, didn't he? He made some of us uncomfortable in the language that he used. He said, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And we all go, <gasps> what about salvation by grace through faith, Jesus? Wouldn't now have been a good time to have said that and make that super explicit and clear? And instead, you botch the opportunity and say, if you would have life, keep the commandments? And of course, all the papists are nodding affirmingly. Uh-huh, we told you. <laughs> And all of the Protestants are squirming uncomfortably figuring out how we're going to explain that language away. But we need not squirm uncomfortably because Jesus explains it for us when he tells this parable. You see, the work begins after the laborers have been brought into the vineyard. And the vineyard is a picture of the kingdom of God. That is to say that them being invited into the kingdom, or excuse me, into the vineyard, is entering the kingdom which we saw last week is synonymous with eternal life, which is synonymous with salvation. You saw those three terms all used in chapter 19 to describe the exact same thing. Their coming into the vineyard is a picture of them coming into the kingdom. The vineyard owner comes to them and sees them standing idle, and he says, hey, why don't you guys come in? Why don't you guys come in? You see? You see? He brings those labors into the kingdom before he puts them to work. They do not work in order to gain entry into the vineyard. 
In fact, what's the text explicit? What are they doing before they enter the vineyard? Quote, standing idle. The opposite of work. <laughs> you, see, you see how explicit the parable is being about how entry into the kingdom actually works. It's because the vineyard owner comes and says, you, you. And remember, even down to the 11th hour scrubs that nobody else wanted to hire. <laughs> right? Goes out, the cream of the crop gets picked first, right? All right, we're going to get these guys look strong. These guys have a little bit of a tan, looking like Philip, look like they might actually be able to do something with their hands. I'm going to get those guys. And then he comes back out. Uh, these guys don't look quite so good. You know what, I'm going to care for you anyway. Comes back out. Whew. You guys can come too. Comes the 11th hour. There's one more hour in the day, and there are still these laborers who are hoping against hope that somebody might hire them. These are the bottom of the barrel laborers. And what's the vineyard owner do? You guys too. You guys too. That's how entrance into the kingdom happens, that's how eternal life gets granted. That's how salvation is conferred, as a work of sheer grace that is totally unmerited and frankly looks like a bad idea to all of the onlookers. <laughs> and he says, you too, you too, you too. That's how this works. Now in the Old Testament, the image of a vineyard was used to symbolize Israel in a handful of passages. So these workers are, if you will, brought into Israel. We've had this discussion before. The workers are brought into Israel, which is to say that they become part of God's people, God's laborers. But again, only after he's made them his own by sovereign selection. Now, a brief aside at this point that I'll warn you could be mildly contentious. And I don't think it'll be mildly contentious because we haven't said it before, because we haven't already made this uh, theological position explicit in a number of other sermons but the reason that it could be contentious today is because in the past when we've made this same point that I'm about to make, modern-day Israel was not at war. And so the, the things I'm going to say you may hear a little bit differently because of what's going on geopolitically. But hear this well. God does not have two vineyards, or as it were, two peoples. It's not as if you've got the church on the one hand, and you've got Israel on the other hand, and these are totally separate entities who have two different programs. That is, in fact, not what the Bible teaches. There is one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism that binds together one people as the body and bride of Christ, the people of God. And hear me, it is Israel. It is Israel. But it is not Israel after the flesh. It is not Israel after the flesh. Rather, Israel is composed of those who are born of the Spirit, those who are in Christ, who is himself the true Israel of God, as Matthew has been teaching us. What does Hosea say, whom Paul later quotes, except that, quote, not all Israel is Israel? You guys read that in your Old and New Testament? Not all Israel is Israel. What he's saying? What is he saying? He's saying that being an actual Israelite isn't a matter of bloodline and lineage, but rather those who have the faith of Abraham are the true sons of 
Abraham, irrespective of physical lineage and parentage. The church and Israel are synonymous entities. And that may be uncommon teaching for many of you. The church and Israel are synonymous entities. So much so that the word church in the New Testament is the exact same word used for the gathering of Jews in the Old Testament that Jesus and the disciples were reading. It's the exact same word. Anytime you see a gathering of Jews formally in the Old Testament, the same word that we translate church in the New Testament is used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that was read by Jesus and the disciples. Same word. So when we say something like, well, there's the church and there's Israel, they'd have been like, what? What? There's the church and the church because it's the same word. What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus is showing us this even when he heals the Canaanite woman. You remember that message when we looked at the account of Jesus healing the Canaanite woman's, excuse me, her daughter, not, not her, the Canaanite woman's daughter. Jesus says to her at first, somewhat strikingly and jarringly to us, he says, why would I heal a Gentile dog like you? You remember that? How offensive it was? And he follows that up by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, was it, and then what, what does he do anyway? He heals her. And, and what did we conclude Jesus is indicating or saying or teaching or communicating in saying, I only came for Israel and then healing a Gentile? What's he saying? He's saying, Israel's growing. Israel's growing. And you, Canaanite Gentile dog, are one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Come home. Come home. You're in. Welcome to the vineyard. That's what he's doing. And what does Paul say of Gentiles in the book of Romans, except that we've been grafted into the olive tree that is Israel? How much more explicit could he be? And listen, for those of you who are uh, well-educated in your distinction between the church in Israel, those of you who have studied this out and maybe hold that position even convictionally, you're, you're maybe sitting there thinking, I've heard of this replacement theology. I've heard of this supersessionism. And I think maybe it's even anti-Semitic. Sometimes that charge is even raised. But listen, this isn't replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. Because God doesn't cut down the Israel tree in order to plant the church tree. What does he do? The text is explicit. He grafts us into the original tree. We're not saying that, any, that Israel got replaced. We're saying that it grew in precisely the way that God had, al had already intended and always promised it would grow. To become a tree that's so large that it shades the entirety of the world. We don't replace Israel. We are integrated into her. That's what the texts teach. That to say, he brings Gentiles into the vineyard, making them a part of Israel. Now, I'll leave you to draw your own geopolitical and eschatological conclusions from that truth, but it is the truth. And we dare not overturn the clear teaching of the New Testament, which says, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, quote, he created in himself one new man in place of the two. Again, how much more explicit could we be? He created one new man 
in place of the two. And then we come along and we want to distinguish between Israel and the church. He said, didn't I explicitly say somewhere multiple times? Grafted into one tree, I took the two and I made them one. This distinction ought not be made. I will say, though, you guys are thinking, how long of an aside is this going to be? <laughs> I will say, though, that I understand the confusion from a biblical studies standpoint. And so don't hear me denigrating anyone who's, hope, who's held that distinction or who sees the passages that way. I'm not intending at all to say, okay, simpletons believe that. That's not my intention. I do understand the confusion from a biblical studies standpoint. The reason it's confusing is because during the writing of the New Testament, there was still a material distinction to make between Jews after the flesh and Gentile converts to Christ. But that's because those Jews were the last generation of Jews to be born under the Old Covenant before that covenant passed away. That's why it makes, that's why it makes it sort of confusing, because you're like, okay, but yeah, I, I get Ephesians 2 that says very clearly that he took the two and he made them one. I, I see that text. I get it. I, I get Romans 11 that were grafted into the olive tree. Like, I understand what you're saying. I'm familiar with those passages of Scripture. And yet, I can find places where mm, Paul talks about Jews and what's going to happen with them. And then he talks about Gentiles a little bit differently. And so I, I, I get the propositions, but then I'm seeing references made in my New Testament that talk about Jews as like a racial category. Not in this spiritual sense that you're talking about. So how do you make sense of that? And again, you make sense of that by virtue of the fact that the Old Covenant was still in force during that time, which meant that Jews who were born under that Old Covenant were still beholden to it until such a time as it was completely fulfilled. Which is to say that until the Old Covenant decisively passed away, there was still a material distinction to be made. But if you believe that the Old Covenant has passed away, then you also believe that the distinction between Jew and Gentile has also passed away. Because the covenant that was made with a physical ethnic people group is a covenant that you and I believe has ended, unless you think somebody should still be slaughtering animals in the temple. Okay, hopefully that's a little bit clearer than mud. When the Old Covenant finally passed, the distinction between Jew and Gentile passed with it. If you want to fight about that later, we certainly can, but I believe that's what the texts teach. And I also believe that this has tremendous bearing on how we process the parable that we're studying. Because if it's true that the vineyard is both a picture of Israel and a symbol in this parable for entering into eternal life, then we have to enter Israel, again that is the vineyard, we have to enter the vineyard in order to be saved. Do you feel the force of that? If the vineyard is a picture of Israel, and have no doubt that it is, Isaiah 5, 7 just explicitly says that the vineyard of God is Israel. Just says it plainly. There are also lots of allusions in the Psalms and uh, other sections of Isaiah. I can give you those references if you want them that identify the vineyard of God is Israel. And now here's this parable. Jesus is equating entrance into the, into the vineyard with entrance into the kingdom or eternal life or salvation. Well, if salvation is being in the vineyard, which is Israel, then you better hope I'm right about all the stuff that I just said. <laughs> because if you're not in Israel, you don't have eternal life. You understand what I'm saying? Are you following that logic? So 
If you think I'm wrong, you should at least hope that I'm right. Or offer a wildly different interpretation of this passage than has been offered. All right. So this parable helps to clear up a confusion that may exist in the minds of the disciples about Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. Is it command-keeping that gets us to life, or is it that we inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells this parable to effectively say, all right, let, let me explain this to you. Entering the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard owner finding some unemployed scrubs who apparently didn't look diligent enough to get picked in the first draft, but in his kindness, he hires them anyway and brings them into his vineyard to obey his commands and work for him. That's how it works. That's how it works. He's clearing up the confusion. This is how salvation actually works. He settles it for us in the telling of this parable. So the parable addresses that and it helps us with it. But I believe that Jesus' central concern in telling this parable is actually to respond to Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27. Peter says in response to Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler, we have given up everything to follow you. What then will we receive? That's the question on the table. And again, you see the contrast because the rich young ruler was told by Jesus to give up everything and follow him. And he walks away unwilling to do it. And so it's a fair question for Peter to ask, right? We did what he couldn't muster up the faith or the gumption or the obedience to do. So Jesus, how will we be rewarded? And Jesus, do notice, Jesus doesn't scold Peter for this question. He doesn't call him selfish or otherwise rebuke him. In fact, Jesus tells him, it's quite the opposite. Jesus says, well, you 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones, and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he broadens that even further, and he says, in fact, all who make sacrifices of this kind for the kingdom will be repaid 100-fold. Those who give anything up for the kingdom, Jesus says, oh, rewards in spades. Whatever you hand over in pursuit of or in obedience to the kingdom of heaven, you will get back with an insane kind of interest. That's what he says. A biblical principle that emerges from that, I won't trace all of this out just for the sake of time, but... One of the principles that's at work here is the fact that whatever you keep from God, you will lose eternally. Whatever you withhold from him, whatever you will not be open-handed with, you will lose eternally. But whatever you give over to him, he's going to give that back to you. Press down, shaken together, running over. That's the idea. Give that stuff up in service of him, and guess what comes right back to you only far more abundantly? The very thing that you were so reluctant to give up in the first place. That's the idea. So the Bible doesn't say that doing things for rewards or for gain is dirty or bad. In fact, Jesus is telling us how to make sure that we receive the greatest and most enduring gain. But the path to that gain is counterintuitive. He says, pouring out fills you up. He says, giving away fills your storehouse. He says, willingly being the last in order to put others first, is actually the thing that shoots you into first place. He says it all just works the opposite of the way that our sinful, carnal pride and flesh would think it should work. And that's all good and right and biblical and beautiful and true. But there is danger in that because we sinners 
can ruin just about anything, can't we? We can pollute anything. Any principle, any truth, any doctrine, no matter how wonderful and pure in its articulation by the Lord Jesus, once we get our hands on it, we can dirty that thing up in a second. So what do we do? We'll turn generosity and sacrifice into a sport and see which one of us is doing it the best. <laughs> Won't we? Won't we turn that into a competition? We become selfish about who can be the most selfless. Right? Some of you, if you've been in, in church long, you've seen these things happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pastor, I'm going to do that. Um, and I've already picked out the plaque that I would like for you to inscribe my name on when I do it. <laughs> yeah. We'll establish a pecking order based on our poverty. I'm last. No, I'm last. No, I'm last. Well, you didn't see what I gave away this morning. Your, your dad is old. I am last. Okay. <laughs> this is our natural inclination to center everything again on our works, on our achievement, on our diligence, on our discipline, on what we bring to the table. But then Jesus tells this parable in order to check that. He brings that impulse under control because at bottom what this parable teaches is that what we get is not based on our work in the vineyard, but it's based on the generosity of the vineyard owner. That's what this parable is intended to teach us. You see, the first hour men want the reward to be distributed on the basis of works because they worked the hardest and the longest. They've got a vested interest, as best they can tell, in God just being fair with them. Right? God, give me what I deserve. None of us, by the way, should ever say that. <laughs> it's an inflated view of our works, you see? It's a centralizing of our works as if they're actually efficacious or necessary for God to get his work in his vineyard done. That was their assumption. But this parable puts their work in the background and puts the vineyard owner's kindness into the foreground. Jesus is saying, I'm going to let you work with me, but do not get the idea in your head that your work is significant or efficacious or that I need it. As if you're making some sort of meaningful contribution to the kingdom which, without which I could never accomplish my ends or purposes. You're not all that you think that you are. You see, these first hour men really did think, what would you have done without me? The, the harvest is coming in, and if you know anything about this epoch of time and, and how agriculture worked, there was rain that was going to follow this bumper harvest, and they were hiring everybody to try to get this thing done before the rains came and ruined their crops. And so it was, get it done, hire everybody. And so these first-hour guys are like, do you not realize the service that we just provided to you? Do you not understand how important and significant our work is to your operations? And now you're not properly honoring us? for being the ones who got the majority of it done, and you're going to put this 11th hour scrub on the same pedestal with me? That's what they're thinking. Do you not understand how significant my work is? They took those 11th hour men receiving the same thing as them as a denigration of their very important, significant, and effective work. 
we had a guy who worked construction with us part-time, and he was really green. He didn't know anything. He couldn't really be helpful yet. And some of you think that I'm talking about myself. I'm not. It's a different guy. <laughs> different guy. And there was one day in particular when, when he called in, and he said that he couldn't make it for one reason or another, and he, he felt horrible. He was super apologetic about it, felt bad, didn't want to put us in a bind, all those sorts of things. But, but here's the thing that this guy didn't understand. He didn't understand that his presence or absence made absolutely no difference at all to whether or not we were going to get the job done. It, it made absolutely this much difference. You know why? Because it was really just the difference between whether or not we were going to have to get our own drill bits or if somebody was going to bring them to us. Because that's how much he knew. It's how helpful. Right? His presence didn't make any difference. And here's the thing. In the kingdom of heaven, we're that guy. In the kingdom of heaven, we're that guy. Maybe we think we're super important. We're like, man, if I don't show up to work, what's God going to do? Well, I guess Gabriel will have to get him his water. Like... It's all going to go as planned because God always accomplishes whatever he plans to accomplish and he'll do it whether you sleep in or not because your work is not nearly so important or central to his programs as we often convince ourselves it is, particularly when we're comparing our work to somebody else who we don't think is working as hard. <laughs> we think, wow, how valuable am I? How well am I doing? What honors do I deserve? Jesus says, Peter, you can show up or you can lay out a work, but guess what's still going to happen? Exactly what I decided was going to happen anyway. So you can come and you can be blessed and you can enjoy being in my vineyard and working alongside me, or you cannot. And guess what's still going to happen? Exactly what I've always planned to do in my kingdom with my world and my resources. That's what the Lord Jesus is teaching in this parable. But these first hour workers, the guys who've been at it all day, Thought that they were the ones who were making it happen. Thought they were killing it because here I've been out here, I've been sweating. Look at all the work that's been done. Look at everything that was out there in the field that's now in the barn. And Jesus pushes their work to the background and he puts the generosity of the vineyard owner right out front. This parable underscores the fact that God's goodness is the center of the kingdom, not our goodness. And it's God's work that drives and runs the kingdom. It's not our work. Again, the rewards are distributed in a way that puts the generosity of the owner on display in a way, way that puts the workers and their labors really almost off the table entirely because it's really about us having the opportunity to work in his vineyard that is already an act of sheer grace on his part because he doesn't need us. It's we who get fulfilled by being able to be in the vineyard working alongside him. He added value to our lives. We didn't add value to his program. You see, we were the ones who were standing idle in the marketplace, sitting around twiddling our thumbs. He said, hey, let me give you purpose. Let me give you meaning. Let me give you direction. He already gave us everything when he put us in the vineyard and gave us a job in the first place. So we should look at this parable and consider the fact that the vineyard owner lost money on the day's work. You see, because those whom he should have paid a fractional value, he paid for a full day. So what's Jesus saying? Marvel at his kindness. Marvel at his goodness. 
And don't make the mistake of thinking that you're the first hour guy because you're probably the 11th hour guy. <laughs> so he lost on their labor so that their families could win. That's what he's doing with those 11th hour guys. He took a hit and lost on that labor. He put himself last to put them and their families first. That's exactly what the vineyard owner ultimately did in the person and work of Christ, who took on the form of a lowly, humble servant and put himself last to the point of death for your sin and for mine. And it's because he put himself last so perfectly and completely that he is now eternally first in the kingdom of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So this ultimately is about Jesus as the one who puts himself last and then becomes again eternally first. And you and I are to imitate his service, his character, his nature. Now as we close, let me set this in its canonical context for you briefly. This parable is about everything that we just said it is, but it's also about more. You see, Matthew's gospel is littered with forecasts about the expansion of Israel to include Gentiles. We already looked at that briefly, even with the miracle that he performs for the Canaanite woman's daughter. He's expanding Israel. He's, he's increasing their territory by including Gentiles, but not as second-class Johnny-come-latelys. Rather, he's doing that as full-status members of the covenant people of God. Jesus' inclusion of Gentiles as full-status members of the kingdom of heaven is going to make waves among the Jews, as you'll know if you've read the book of Acts. There, there was no small amount of friction, right? A lot of the epistles are written in order to address that friction that was existing between Jews, first-hour workers, been at this a long time, been in this covenant a long time, been in this vineyard a long time, sweating, grunting, being disciplined when they failed. And now there are these 11th hour Gentiles who get brought into the kingdom and, and they're receiving all the same stuff. They're getting the spirit. They get salvation. They get made priests in this new temple. They get to offer sacrifices, but they didn't work as hard as me. They weren't even there during the Babylonian exile, except that some of their parents were probably the ones who were whipping us. Where's our reparations? Sorry, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> right? No small amount of friction there. As the Jews had been the ones who were working in the scorching heat, serving Yahweh, being disciplined by Yahweh. And now these people who have been on the outside just get brought in and they've got all the same benefits. They've got the same status fully included and grafted in. There's friction there. But their response should have been, isn't God kind? Isn't God kind that he would do that for them? Because ultimately, we didn't deserve to have been selected in the first place either. It's just that the kindness of God is what's being magnified here. So may we become, as he is, this vineyard owner. And when we've worked and slaved and poured ourselves out only to receive the same as those who've done less, may we say simply, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty, and it is our delight to work the vineyard of our Father together. That's it.
Let's pray.